Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephen H. Wilson Stephanie Sawyer Michael Spence The Prof With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now... Episode 15 Hello, this is Hera Flea, daughter of Heretic from the Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour, which you can find at www.reprobateshour.com. You also know me as Kitty McKeon, one of the actors and producers of this book you're listening to now. That book, of course, is Antithesis, book one, and this is the story so far. Joss Kyle has had his hands full, analyzing intelligence briefings, running his bar, and keeping an interloper busy. It seems that a lunar dock worker, Scott Walters, found himself in possession of a secret backdoor to the Persian military command computer. Under orders from Cassie Orenthal, Joss has come up with one excuse after another to avoid paying Walters and to keep him around. But he's running out of ideas, and he has his own business to get on with anyway. It's probably just as well. The man whom he believes to be Scott Walters is actually Percy Scott, subversive, murderer, and covert agent for the United States. After interviewing Walter's boss, Cassie Orenthal broke into Walter's apartment to try to find clues to his agenda. While there, she was forced to hide as Douglas Reeves made an unexpected appearance, removing the core memory from Walter's home system. Surprised by Reeves' presence, Cassie collected the items of interest she'd found and shadowed Reeves as he took the computer core to the top level of Luna City and into the cathedral. We join her again outside the cathedral, where she was first recruited into the Resistance. Reeves, on the other hand, she saw losing no time treading briskly south towards the only building of any stature under the dome. It was one that Cassie had seen before, that damnably tall cathedral where they had recruited her after her first job. Oh gods, he's made us. He knows about the dead drop in the confessional. She quickened her footfalls, caring less now for concealment than she did for keeping him in sight. Her hand found its way to an inside pocket and a small dart gun. She drew it out and palmed it as she crested the shallow rise next to a park bench. Down before her in the shallow bowl was the monstrosity, and he was nearly at its door. If he turned around, he would see her. She sat with her back to him, looking over the patchwork hectares and pretending to adjust the bindings on her boots. Thirty more seconds and he's in. He'll go through the bullshit with the candles. He'll sit down. She looked fixedly at the top of the gallery and counted to fifty, very slowly. Enough time for him to get inside and past all the vestibular formalities. Forty-nine, fifty. She stole a glance over her shoulder. He was in. There were no trees or bushes for cover. The hills around the cathedral were planted in plain grass, extra habitat for the little creepy crawlies that made agriculture work in an engineered environment. Nowhere to hide if he popped back out, or if he ducked behind a column. She covered the 80 meters at a dead run, skidding to a stop just before the not-quite-overtly-Volva-like door of Holy Mother Church. She'd been here often enough since they recruited her that, against her firm wishes, she'd learned all the proper terminology. A cover was a cover, after all, and humanity wouldn't have crawled to the top of the evolutionary bush without wiggling under some pretty disgusting covers from time to time. 
Cassie took two deep breaths before putting her hand against the door and pushing. The cavernous interior glowed purple. The nave shot through with the light of hundreds of stained glass windows basking in the dome light. Normally, it would just be nice atmosphere, but today... There was a boys' choir singing something in a language she didn't know. The melodies soared as high as the arches long away overhead until they nearly scraped the dome. The sound filled the place, seeking out even the corners where the light couldn't reach. Cassie steadied herself and surveyed the nave from the relative darkness of the vestibule. Reeves wasn't in the congregation. Had he gone back to the offices? Was it possible he had judicial business here? She went to the candles and lit one, taking care to appear as a parishioner. She crossed herself and mimed a prayer, trying to squelch the rising dread in her stomach. Something was very, very wrong. She stood up from the altar and went to the stairs, running her hands along the polished marble pillar as she spiraled her way upwards to the balcony overlooking the nave. The coldness of the stone steadied her, if only for a moment. The view was no less spectacular than the view from the top of the gallery. Eight meters below her, pews were laid like ladder rungs leading up to the ostentatious altar. Arrayed before it on the steps were the boys in robes, about thirty of them. Only a couple of them passed puberty. The room rang with their voices in the organ, a chorus of bells and strings seeming to come from all directions at once, swallowing up all other sounds in a wreath of stained glass song. She walked the full perimeter of the nave, the kaleidoscopic light throwing her off her mental beam. He wasn't here. He shouldn't have been here in the first place, but she saw him come in. Where? She circled around to the head of the nave, the balcony set in the wall above the altar. The only place left where he could have gone was back into the offices and the rectory, but that door was shut. If he had gone in there to talk to the priest, she'd have to wait him out. Cassie stepped lazily sideways until she found a column and leaned against it. The choir was starting a new song. It sounded vaguely familiar, something she'd heard at Joss's place on Nineveh. It was full of longing, of aspiration, and she wished she could remember what it was. Through the clear sections of the towering stained glass opposite her, she looked out through the dome to the stars beyond. The music drew up alongside her and seemed to push her towards the window, up and out, back to where she belonged in the stars, away from all the posturing, the role-playing, the darkness that was always just around the corner. Someday, someone from the old days would find a way to get through her phalanx of defenders and knock her off the top of the organization. Maybe even someone she trusted. Maybe Xylar. Out there, she didn't have to worry about it. She knew where she stood captain of her own private world, needing only to keep the fuel tanks, the oxygen, and the food stocks full. Anyone she ran into was either a passenger or a charter. No complications. Unless she counted Joss. He was out there, 
off on Nineveh, which would pass behind the sun in another few months. As the music's longing drew out to the dying fall of a single voice held on a clear, high note, she felt something inside her crack. He wasn't like Brittany, beautiful, twisted Brittany, determined because of her wounds. Brittany made Luna bearable, but underneath, she was better than Cassie, stronger, and Cassie knew it. She envied the tiny dancer. Or Jade. Jade was a cipher to her now. Jade, who had once been so fierce, now a homebody who didn't report in. Didn't even call. The sister who was dearer to her than her own blood. The sister she didn't understand anymore. But Joss... Joss, she understood. He knew how to survive. He felt the pressure of life drifting by, and he knew why it was important to live it on his own terms. She missed him. She missed... knowing where she stood. A movement by the confessional caught the corner of her eye. She ducked behind the column and kept watch. A small round woman with blonde hair walked briskly away, not remembering to cross herself at the altar. Sloppy. She was carrying a shoulder-slung green bag. A moment after the blonde disappeared behind the columns in the vestibule, a dark man with lithe lines stepped out of the priest's booth in the confessional. Reeves. Out of the confessional where she had been recruited. The dead drop where the resistance people passed information to the man behind the screen. Adrenaline burned through Cassie like a welding fire in an overpressurized room. Reeves was a bloodhound. He'd been prosecuting people in her organization for years. He was tenacious. He never let go. The drop was compromised. And if he knew about this drop, if he was meeting his people here, then he knew everything. They were all marked. She sprang into a dead run as soon as he left through the door, around the columns and down the stairs to the main floor, and then skidded to a stop right before the door. She couldn't leave yet. She had to give him time to make it to the lift. Standing still, tapping her foot, pacing back and forth in front of the door, the suspicions that spurred her on finally coalesced. Reeves was here. The organization had been sold out somehow. Reeves knew about the whole thing. And Jade hadn't told her. There you go. Joss slammed the coins down onto the bar and let out a whoop. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. The last round of qualifications are done. In 20 minutes, the tournament begins. Gina, a round of drinks for the winner and his party. From one end of Phalanx to the other, there wasn't a square inch that wasn't jam-packed with bodies. Their roar was enough to make the room sing like alarm bells in a cathedral. Joss beamed as he leaned across the bar and handed a passkey to the lucky contestant, then raised his eyes back to the assembly. 700 years ago, citizens of Persia learned to create cards for telling the future. They painted pictures on thin boards that reminded them of the stars and the jinn and the knowledge forbidden to them by the Muslim clerics. Those who did this were thieves, pirates, mercenaries, convicts, undesirables, heretics. At the height of their civilization, they played a game called Asnan, 
The civilization collapsed beneath the weight of its own cowardice, its own factionalism, but the game endured. Undesirables from every corner of Europe took the game home from the wars with them and called it Pochen. It traveled with their soldiers through wars, with their heretics across the mighty seas to America, with their convicts to Australia. The cards changed. The fortunes they told became fortunes they lost. And the game marched on. It traveled around the world and went with the first travelers to the moon and the other planets. This game of revolution, of guile, of craft, and unquenchable avarice played here amongst the stars in every port in the solar system. Today, we renew this game here among the thieves, the unwanted, the convicts, the heretics, the blasphemers, on the only independent state in the solar system, the last free port. We raise a deck against the earth governments who would enslave us and throw them back at the Persians who invented it. We set an example for those stragglers on Luna who waffle between freedom and comfort. Here on Nineveh, we play the first annual Phalanx Poker Tournament. Top prize is six million, and half of all antis go to help build the Federation military for that day very soon when we deal the Persians and the Americans into the game and take them for all they're worth. Joss could hear his pulse over the din. It made his eyes swim. The room was like a Pentecostal revival, lit with the consuming holy fire of avarice and war. Gentlemen, to your tables! The tournament is now open! The cheer ripped open every ear in the place. Joss stepped down from his riser behind the bar and tended to a rush of drinks orders before ducking out and patrolling the floor. There were players here from every corner of the system. An odd mix of Earth's super-rich who could afford the boost this far out for the sake of an exotic card game, and the regular riffraff from Nineveh who managed to scrape together enough for the buy-in. The fervor rose and fell in the room like the breathing of a great dragon, still asleep, whose fires were beginning to rise. When the time came... The whole station would be ready. He had promised Cassie he could run the op to drum up support, and it was nearly done. Now, it was up to the people above her to introduce the other essential chemicals into the mix, and a single spark from the Terrans would set it off. And there were, as always, the fringe benefits. People here from Earth heard things. They knew things. And they would talk about things over cards that would be useful. Ground-level perspectives, information that didn't register as important even with the citizen journalists of the blogosphere. Those were priceless. The smell of anticipation was heavy in the air as Joss meandered between the tables like a general inspecting the troops. Already he'd spotted the likely winners, though with good players there were always surprises. Looking in on the spectators' gallery with the screens for the whole card cameras, Joss satisfied himself that things were well and truly ready. All the electric eyes turned on hypervigilant to catch any signs of cheating, and the chatter in his earpiece told him that Mondu was on the job. 
His contract entertainment, all of them young and well-trained to remember the occasional careless word, were arrayed throughout the room in just the right places to catch the eyes of the players between deals. The tournament itself would stretch for six days, perhaps seven if the contest was close, and during that time he would be busier than he had been since his arrival here. Uh, It would be a hell of a tourney. It was all he could do not to buy himself in. The board was set. He sat down in his customary booth and sniffed at the tumbler that one of his people had set out for him. This was how he liked it. Out here in the backwater, out of the beltway, and in the trenches. No politicos looking over his shoulder, no worries about moving strategy around, just honest-to-God agitation and analysis. Like it was back when he'd been lecturing and writing spy novels and economics books. The hawk's eye spot on a one-meter rise near the bar gave him a perfect view of the room. Scott Walters waited a few booths away in the place where personal appointments queued up. Joss caught his eye and waved him over. The lean man answered the summons. He still looked familiar, and he looked far too small to be a dock worker. But, Joss conceded, he had proved useful. Putting him to work dropping squeeze to the dock rats who came in turned out to be a good pretext for keeping him around, and Joss had seen what he needed to from that. He'd caught a few pieces of information he wouldn't otherwise have gotten. He'd gotten a few little non-confidential luxuries through customs without incurring the tariff penalties for goods from hostile powers such as the Persian Empire. And Scott Walters had proved to Joss, far beyond the shadow of a doubt, that he was valuable. Far more valuable than a lowly lunar dock rat should be. Walters sat down opposite him and nodded. Thanks for sticking around. The bounty checks out. The information's good. You'll get your payment as soon as we get your account info. I need cash. This was a wrinkle Joss hadn't been expecting. What are you running from? Look, Mr. Kyle. Scott fixed his gaze on Joss. What I do and where I go is my business. We're fighting for freedom here, right? Freedom from being watched and controlled? Well, I don't want to talk about my business with you. I just want my money. But unless you have more paying work for me, I'm ready to get on my way. Fair enough. Like he's been rehearsing it. I can have the cash for you tomorrow. We'll pay it out of the proceeds for the warfront from the tournament. If you want some more work... Scott didn't respond, but waited. You're a Mortonite, right? We don't discuss it with... Josh silenced him with a thump on the table. I'm not asking you to tell me about the initiation rite. I've read all about it. Oh. Yes. Walters looked almost meek, like he'd been caught out on something. There are some other Mortonites here in the tournament. I'd appreciate it if you can help make them feel at home. Wear this. Joss produced an inner earbug from a hidden compartment in his shirt cuff. And act naturally. Walters nodded like a beaten slave and put the bug in his ear. Then stood and walked to the tournament. Something about it still didn't track. The tournament would, Joss hoped, give him a little extra time and info to untangle the mystery around Scott. It was far too late in the game to risk loose ends. One of these days, someone would invent time travel. If they did, Percy would go back in time and do a little bit of cleanup. Morton Smith, particularly, wouldn't make it as far as his third birthday 
A man who could propound a theology that Jesus was some kind of puffy visionary didn't deserve to live long enough to poison the minds of other Christians. It wasn't that playing the part bothered him more than, well, more than a lot of other things he'd had to do as part of this job. When the safety of the entire nation was at risk, you had to do things. Sometimes terrible things. It was one thing to do what had to be done to save lives and defend the nation. God would always forgive that. He knew the world wasn't perfect. But it was quite another two. He could barely bring himself to admit what it was. It was quite another to play the part of a blasphemer and loudly venerate his prophet. Someday, someone would invent a time machine. And if Percy was there, he would make sure Morton Smith died for his perversion. It wasn't hard to pick the heretics out of the bunch. They all wore a cross on a chain, and the cross had a cloth hanging from it, the symbol of initiation into the mysteries. Percy had one around his neck as well. Percy found a half-butt-wide space between a dolled-up groupie and a bouncer, and wiggled his scrawny frame between them, planting his suit on the lip of the table. The hours crawled by and he did his best to keep up a facade of rapt attention, shooting the occasional cloying look to the cult members around the table, and keeping otherwise to himself. He'd not had the time to really get into the cover that he wanted, and although the real Scott Walters wasn't a recluse by any stretch, he tended to keep to a close circle of fellow initiates unless he was cruising for a date. That was the breathing room Percy needed to play Scott as a little more shy than he really was and protect him from blowing his cover by accident. The PPD vibrating against his thigh made him jump. He took it out and examined the screen. An email from the Terran Entertainment Network. He excused himself and dodged his way through the baker's dozen poker tables to the men's room. As the door swung shut behind him, the clamor dropped to near silence as the heavy lumber came between Percy and the gaming room. The quiet fans in the wood-paneled room made his ears scream, aching for the safety of the din and refuge from the predatory silence. Percy took a couple of deep breaths, then tried to clear his head. His ears searched for sounds to latch onto, trying to find anything through the white noise. After a good thirty seconds, during which a murderous panic rose in his throat, he heard it, somewhere at the back of all that silence, once every fifteen seconds or so, dependable, the little plink-plop of a dripping faucet. His nerves steadied, he took stock, looking first down the line of empty urinals and then checking the other stalls to make sure they were empty before he deliberately chose the smallest one and ducked inside. The money flowed like water as the cards flew like doves between the pigeons. Poker was, like commerce, a more civilized and productive form of warfare, a sublimation of the primal drive of man to compete and win and dominate and rule into something subtle and beautiful. The exchange of power across the green felt, the understanding that grew between two opponents who sat together until they were the only two left at the table. Two players who made it to that point, in a contest like this, knew one another like lovers, or better. The last table of the day was down to the last two gamesmen. 
Joss hadn't watched closely enough to get a measure of the players, couldn't tell which man was going to come out on top. It didn't matter. It wasn't, strictly speaking, his contest anyway. But the chips were down and the cards were up and the last deal was down and dirty. The air was still, like the white silence before the detonators that bring down an old building. Joss cleaned his bar in preparation for the rush. In 15 minutes, he'd be drowning in customers. 20 minutes after that, the press of flesh would peter out and he would retire to the back room to help Mondu vet the recordings. The temps he'd hired in would do their jobs and he would find, if he was lucky, one or two sympathetic sources and another three or four persuadable ones. The silence was broken when the larger of the two contestants said, clearly and quietly, I fold. The spectators bellowed. The victor stood and tipped his hat to the crowd. Joss stepped up on the riser behind the bar. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow dissidents, that ends our first day. The bar will be open for another half hour before we close down and set things up for the next and much more intense round tomorrow. If the winner will speak to the referee, he will give you your passkey for tomorrow. The table's open at 0900. Until then, those of you new to the station will find the entertainment district five levels directly below us. Enjoy yourselves. Now, come forward. Drinks are on the house. The photograph was grainy, taken with an old-style camera without noise reduction passes. Even through the email, the Civil War-era characters sat together with the melancholy dignity of the condemned. Their once-crisp blue uniforms worn battered, threadbare, and, though the sepia tintypes didn't show the colors, stained through with the blood of too many brothers from the other side of the line. Bill had meant it to remind him that the world really was as fetid as it seemed to be. The price for liberty and security were always paid by those who protected them, and those closest to them. The tintype was part of a message, buried in a banal, ordinary news photograph of a beefcakey celebrity doing press for his new movie. Exactly the kind of cryptic pornography that a man like Scott Walters would carry with him. The noise in most photographs was random, slathered on for effect like spray paint. Artists used it for making something look old or fuzzy or some other damn thing. This was different. The grain in this photograph meant something. It could only be decoded on Percy's personal PPD, and only with his thumbprint used as the key. The last mission communique was buried in the visual noise. Over the image of the tintype, the message read, The board is all set. All other pieces are in play. Mate in three. Three weeks to get back to Luna. Orbital opposition was coming up, but it would still take two weeks on a slow ship back. Scott Walters wouldn't be able to afford an express. That left a week to do the job, and this after three goddamn weeks bumming around the bar, going out on shakedowns, following security officers, vetting news reports on a PPD like Screwtape's younger brother. He had to create an opportunity to make the drop, and he had to do it in the next couple days. Percy suddenly felt like a squirrel on a high-tension wire. He had no access to the terminals in the office behind the bar, no access to anything that might let him complete his mission. It was the linchpin of the entire operation. The larger plan depended on it. Whatever it was. Then there was that last bit of cleanup to do on Luna before the ball dropped. 
big changes were coming. All of this, even Marion, had been groundwork. And if he survived the job, he would find out why. This had better be damn good, Bill, or the next larynx I remove will be yours. He took off his right shoe and slid the panel open, taking out a small pair of vials with a snap cap on an electrical trigger between them. Joss handed the bar off to one of his underlings and ducked back behind it into the office. The once comfortable large closet he had for himself was quickly becoming a full-fledged war room. Mondu was plugged into three different terminals, reviewing footage and tapes, shuffling off tasks to two assistants he'd been training for categorization and analysis before the reports were funneled to a sixth terminal for Joss to deal with personally. The kids, kids were the only ones who had the patience, energy, and ambition to do the grunt work, were bumping along to an oppressive Asiatic beat track, a degenerate form of music that Joss considered little different from mainlining a migraine. The place felt like a behavioral research laboratory at the university, and... In a sense, it was. For all the years and millions of miles between Stanford and Nineveh, the ages, talent, ambition, and malleability of Mondu's crew made them little different from the grad students that Joss once had as minions. He came up behind Mondu and leaned into the blue light of the panels. Anything interesting yet? Not now, Joss. Sharpies pushing nachos. Card sharps pushing chips around. Joss still had to mentally translate. He couldn't hear the stuff straight. Well... Keep at it. You'll find it. Sit, sit. Get him soon. Good. He resisted the temptation to demand they switch the beat feed. Joss refused to call it music, even privately, into their earphones. In there, it would confuse their ears as they picked through and sifted out the multi-layered conversations. The crosstalk would obscure the vocal harmonics and make the sound muddy to them. He grabbed his headphones and flicked on the noise cancel switch, slipping into the blessed silence like an easy chair. The cleanup in the main room was best handled by the catering staff, and ten hours on show personally overseeing every detail of the event had him itching to get back to his apartment, put his feet up, and dive into a book on the Etruscans or some other obscure civilization. But there was work to do, and he supposed he should be glad of it. There were reports to be vetted, emails to be responded to, bounties to post, and inside another half hour, the summaries from Mondu's crew would be pouring in. He could just as well have been back in his Palo Alto office grading papers two entire lifetimes ago, before the house in Plymouth and the job in Boston, before his entire life slid into a mere metabolic exercise. He hated to admit it, but the contract was probably the best thing that ever happened to him. Back home in Plymouth now, the snow would be falling. November would bring the smell of wood fires, the burn of sub-zero weather in the nostrils of neighborhood fathers who chased their children over the playgrounds. The kids, his kids, would be playing outside, probably making snow angels. Sally would be sitting on the porch watching them, probably wondering why he hadn't made the effort to come home for the Christmas season again. Since the divorce, he'd actually enjoyed her company and looked forward to the spare moments he was allowed out of the beltway to see the little ones get less and less little. No, Joss decided. They probably thought he was dead. They'd probably been told he was dead the moment he skipped out on his secret service minders by slipping down a cenote and following the saltwater current out to sea. To his family, he was dead. Then again, Sally thought he was dead while they were still living together. She was probably right. His mouth was dry. He pulled up the order flag and sent a note to the bar. 
Then there was Walters. Every time he thought he had the guy figured out, that little crumb popped up again. It was still there, stuck behind his tonsils. Everything he'd been able to find checked out. The job, the life story, the biometrics, what few of them were on file. Even the guy's taste in drinks, which showed up on his bar tab at his favorite place on Luna. The Persian codes checked out. Joss had no legitimate excuse for withholding the bounty. Wanting to know where it came from wasn't sufficient, not if he wanted to maintain his ability to get his hands on that kind of information in the first place. And that was the rub. Cassie wanted Walters kept around, but hadn't said why. He couldn't keep her happy much longer and still maintain his reputation. Walters had no reason to stay. He had a life and a job on Luna. He hated Nineveh, and he worked on the docks, the perfect position from which to spread rumors about him to the most vulnerable point in any information block. The low-paid grunts that actually did the drudge work and made the whole system function. No, Joss decided, he couldn't afford the exposure. He sent the cash transfer request to the station bank. The three days that financial institutions stole to earn a little bit of extra interest on a depositor's money would give him the last window he'd have to untangle. His chair slipped back against the deck. He hadn't moved it. Joss tore the headphones from his head and looked around. Mondu and his lackeys were still working like nothing happened. The thumping noises pounded his eardrums, but he couldn't hear anything over it. Just as he turned back to his console, Mondu jumped up from his chair and looked at him, his dark skin washing a sickly pale yellow. Without waiting for an explanation, Joss burst through the door and rounded the corner to the bar proper. The air was thick with dust. Smoke billowed black up from the flaming remains of the gaming table. Surrounding tables and chairs were thrown willy-nilly all across the dining area. Just as he skidded to a stop to take in the destruction, the fire alarm blared, high and panicky from the horn in the wall, and floor meth gas gushed from fountains in the ceiling, smothering the fire and the injured bodies beneath it. <gasps> Joss took a deep breath and dove into the cloud, casting about for anyone smothering underneath the gas. The polymer and felt fire wouldn't last long, but the heat scorched his arm hairs. There was someone hacking. He grabbed the spasming body under the arms and pulled it out past the dissipating edge of the extinguishing gas. Joss poured over the body, checking for injuries. A few splinters driven through the man's clothing, nothing requiring immediate attention. He looked back to the wreckage. The gas was clearing, and the place was a mess. Three more people on the ground with injuries. Mondu and his lackeys were helping. Joss stood up and surveyed again to make sure he didn't miss anything. There wasn't much of a crowd left. Dissipated after the round of free drinks and the crew had been well into cleanup, no doubt. The damage was small. The bomb couldn't have been more than a couple of tons worth of force. The tabletop was shredded. Melted plastics and splintered carbon fibers thrust upwards as if a pile driver had smashed up through it from below. Whatever it was, it had been planted under the table. Mondu! What's up? Get these people cleared out of here and lock this down now! Sit sit. Mondu immediately took charge of the situation, speaking in plain language for the first time since Joss had hired him. Joss turned and dashed to the bar, finding the comm panel next to the POS terminal. Security office, please hold. No. Pardon me? I need to speak to Chief Williams immediately. The chief is in a meeting. If you're willing to hold... Listen to me carefully, because I'm only going to say this once. This is Joss Kyle, proprietor of Phalanx. We've just had a terrorist attack in the bar, and if you don't find him and get his sorry ass in that load of goat intestines he calls brains down here now, both you and he will be looking for your Adam's apples in a diplomatic bag I send up to CNC with records of the bribes you accept. Are we clear? Perfectly. The comm channel closed. Who did this? Why? The skin on the back of his neck bunched up as he tried to sort through it all. Who knew he was here? 
Nobody, that's who. He had a different name, a different face. He'd gotten a dozen ways to fool biometrics, from the transplanted fingertips to the sanded-down voice box to the laser etching in his irises. Nobody knew he was here. Nobody knew who he was. Not a soul in the whole system, so far as he knew. Nobody. Except one. Joss tore himself from the bar and turned the corner into the office, shouting at the computer before the door was even closed. Computer! Comm channel! Cassie Orenthal, Luna. The door slammed shut. He didn't see the man he'd recognize as Scott Walters pushing himself out of the corner barely obscured by the bulkhead near the door. He didn't see that man slink up to the door and check that it was closed before hurrying past and slipping quietly out of the bar without attracting anyone's gaze. And, inside the office... There was nothing out of place, no way to know who had been in there, or what had gone on. Percy ducked into the first lift he came across and headed down to the zoo to catch up with the party of Mortonites he was supposed to be entertaining. The job was done. You've been listening to episode 15 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Other music by kind permission of Totally Mesmerized at totallymesmerized.googlepages.com. This episode starts Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Michael Spence as the deputy, and the prof as the gambler. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attributions Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. One man. No. Two men. Going. Three men. Seven men. Seven men. Seven clones. Holy shit, seven clones? Of one man. Seven clones of one man. Who killed the president? Who killed. Who killed the president? Yes, just John Alpha. The president is John Alpha? No, seven. Seven clones. Seven clones. Of one man. Of one man. John Alpha. John Alpha. The Seventh Son Trilogy. The Seventh Son Trilogy. From J.C. Jesus Christ. No, the other J.C. Jonathan Colton. No, the other J.C. J.C. Hutchins. Put it all together. Seven clones of one man, John Alpha, who killed the president. From J.C. Hutchins, it's the Seventh Son Trilogy. Visit www.jchutchins.net for more information. Alright, that's a wrap. Thank God.
I know, I know, that's an old promo for Seventh Son, but it's still my favorite, and since the book is coming out in print soon, I thought it would be a good idea to run it again. If you haven't heard the Seventh Son books, but you're a fan of suspense and hairy cliffhangers like 24 or any Robert Ludlum novel, head on over to jchutchins.net and give it a listen. Now this is episode 15 of 27, and the plot threads are beginning to collide, and it only gets worse or better, depending on your point of view, from here on in. I gotta thank all of you for the fabulous feedback since the last dealing in I did with Chris Lester and Kitty Nakian. The format has proved very popular, so we're going to make it a regular thing here. If you send in enough feedback, I might even be able to coax Philippa Ballantyne to help us out with our next dealing in next week when she's here visiting. At that time, I'll also be able to announce the winner of the drawing for the My Name is Joss Kyle t-shirt. It's actually one of a couple shirts we've now got up in the store, which you can find in the right side of the show blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. More are coming soon. If you want to be entered in the drawing, it's very easy. Leave a review at iTunes. Obviously, I'd love a glowing review, but you'll be entered into the contest whether you leave a positive or a negative review. The drawing is on January 3rd, the first chance I'll have to do it, so get your reviews into iTunes before then. My steampunk story, Cold Duty, has been getting rave reviews since its posting last week. You can hear it both at steampod.org and at clonepod.org. The first is Chris Moody's steampunk audio magazine and has lots going on. The second is its sister podcast for general science fiction and is much more just the straight story without so much, uh, without so much introductory banter. Both casts are great, and I know that at least some of you will enjoy the story of a man who unintentionally changes the course of history when he inherits a chemistry factory in Victorian England. And if you haven't gotten all of Christmas out of your system yet, check out the bonus episode The Gift of the Magi on this feed. It's a special revised version of the classic O. Henry story performed by members of my family one mad evening after too much eggnog. It's not exactly science fiction, but hey, sometimes a change of pace can be good, right? Hmm. I think my inner literature geek is coming out. I must go find some medication for that. Watch this feed this weekend for another bonus episode, this one featuring composer Danny Shade talking about the music of Antithesis. We're recording it on the new year, on Thursday, so send in any questions you have for him post-haste to dan at jdsawyer.net, and I will ask him in the interview. If you're in the San Francisco area this January 10th, come to Borderlands Books on Valencia Street in San Francisco at 3 p.m. for Scott Sigler's reading of Contagious, and then join Scott Sigler, myself, Chris Lester, and Seth Harwood for drinks carousing and general disreputability across the street at the Phoenix Pub. Unconfirmed rumors have it that Cunning Minx and perhaps one or two other podcasters might show up, so it'll be even wilder than last time. The last meetup we all had was a great success. If you weren't there last time, come out and join the fun this time around. And if you were, we'd certainly love to have you back. There's a link to the eventful posting in the show notes at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. If you can't make the 10th but could make the 3rd, come to the M is for Mystery Bookstore on East 3rd Avenue in San Mateo and see Scott's reading there. I'll be at that one too, as will your favorite Kiwi and mine, Philippa Ballantyne. Yes, that is M is for Mystery and not Barnes & Noble, as I mistakenly said last time. 
If you want to talk back to me and have your comments the subject of raucous discussion and debate on the next Dealing In, you can call the brand new feedback line at 206-350-5739. You can also send audio feedback by recording an MP3 or a WMV or an AUG file or just about anything else and emailing it to me. The address is dan at jdsawyer.net. And as always, you can leave remarks on the show blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. Questions, comments, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome. And that's all for me here, except for the much-anticipated nagging questions. Why did Joss call Cassie after the bombing? What is Cassie going to do to Jade? What is the last bit of cleanup that Percy has to do on Luna? And finally, what did Percy do to Joss's office during the confusion? Find out soon, and until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.